The scripture reading that the sermon is based upon is from Psalm 91. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you again, Astoria Community Church. I've preached here at least once before, maybe a couple of times in the last few years. I'm a really big fan of your pastors. He is preaching at my church this morning, so you guys got the raw end of the deal. Um, I encourage you to keep Psalm 91 open. We'll be looking at that. There was only one thing that was not true in the little introduction about me. I did not grow up in Astoria. Um, I grew up more in like Long Island City, Woodside, but my wife and I and our family, we used to live in Astoria. We actually lived for a couple of years right on Crescent Street, but over by the park. And so we love this neighborhood. Um, we have two sons, two adopted sons who are in college, a sophomore at Hunter College, a freshman at Queens College, and my father-in-law, Kwong Kim, um, he's 81 years old. He came here from Korea 50 years ago. Um, so there's five of us in a small New York City apartment, and every once in a while, my wife and I look to the future when maybe in years and years and years from now, it's just the two of us, and we kind of dream about, oh, maybe we'll go back to Astoria, because it's a great neighborhood. We just had too small of a place when we were here. Um, I encourage you to have Psalm 91 open. That's all we're going to look at today. And, and whatever else Psalm 91 is about, Psalm 91 is about the future. Um, it's about how we go into the future as human beings, as God's people. And I'm going to share a quote with you that I want to kind of frame and focus our, our exploration of this passage that I'm going to pray, and we'll look at it. Really famous Danish philosopher in the 19th century, Soren Kierkegaard, is the name that some of you probably heard, really interesting guy, really interesting, profound, complicated thinker. One of the most famous things Soren Kierkegaard ever wrote was this single sentence, and it was not in any of his published books. It was in his notebooks, his private journals, which were kind of published after he died. And he said this, the, the first half of the sentence is summarizing what he thinks all the great philosophers in history have kind of taught us, and, and that's this, that life can only finally be understood backwards. 
It's a fancy way of saying hindsight is 2020. That as we get older and we look back on the past, so much we understand better now than we did in the present now later on. And then he goes on and he says, but here's the problem. You have to live your life forwards. And so you can only understand life backwards, but you have to live life forward. And that's, I think, what Psalm 91 encourages us to do, to live forward into a future that to us is unknown, that is murky, that is uncertain, that is unpredictable, and to have a sense of how we ought to posture ourselves. Whatever the future is for each of us, and each of us is not God, this is not true for God, but it is true for us in being a Christian does not change this. It does not remove us from the basic human condition. The future always comes to us as a stranger, as a surprise, and as uncertain, and therefore, with a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, a lot of worry, and Psalm 91 is one of the great statements in Scripture of what's often known as the providence of God, the idea that even though we don't know what the future holds, we can trust God even as we seek to live our life forwards. So let's pray, and then we'll look at Psalm 91. Father, thank you for Astoria Community Church. Thank you for this building we get to worship in. Thank you for your people. And as we consider your word in Psalm 91, um, and I know that, that one of the many things that every single one of us has in common in this room is that we would like to know more about what next year and next decade and what the economy will look like and what the world that we leave to our kids and our grandkids will look like. And yet, um, we are so often frustrated by our lack of knowledge of the future. We so often feel incredibly fragile and vulnerable and unprotected. We are so tempted to regular worry and anxiety and fear as we look at the future, even in some ways more dangerously to, to unfounded hopes and excitements and anticipation for things that you have not promised us that we ought not to trust in. And so I pray that as all of us are called to live our lives forward with a profound lack of knowledge of what the specific circumstances we will face will look like, I pray that this psalm would give us wisdom, would increase our faith in how we can trust in you, how we can take refuge in you as we move into the future. And I pray this in Jesus' name. When I was in college, I actually became a Christian my freshman year in college. And when I went to college, and I actually ended up doing this, I majored in journalism. By the way, this is so random, but I read a, a survey online the other day that of all the majors that anybody can major in in college, journalism majors have the highest percentage of regretting it later on. 82% of journalism majors regret having majored in journalism. I'm in the 18% that doesn't, but I'm doing something that's not obviously connected to journalism. I was always grateful for the kind of the writing and the, and the communication skills that were there. But one thing I've, I, I, I'm always fascinated by is how major newspapers, the New York Times, whatever, when somebody's famous enough, newspapers tend to have an obituary on file long before a public figure actually dies. And so when Queen Elizabeth died a few months ago in September, she was, I think, in her 90s, wasn't she? Like, she was, she was queen for a long time. And I would guess that the New York Times probably had an obituary on file for Queen Elizabeth 30 years ago, maybe 40 years ago. And here's a little thought experiment, not to be dark with the obituary, but just in general. Imagine if Instead of me talking for the next five minutes, I'm not going to do this, I asked each of you to pull out a piece of paper and to write down 
10 predictions for what you think the future will hold in your life in the next 20 to 30 years. Write down what you think is coming, what you hope is coming, your best predictions for what you think is coming, and imagine that magically we could somehow, this exact group, reassemble in this room in 20 or 30 years, pull out that piece of paper, and walk through our predictions. And here's two things I would say about that. We're not going to do it. One is that the difference between those of you who got seven or eight right and those of you who got all of them wrong or an eight or nine of them wrong would have almost nothing to do with your insight or lack of insight. It would basically be, humanly speaking, luck. The second thing, and maybe I think more significantly, is that the degree of predictions you got right would have absolutely no connection to how much you flourished or did not flourish in those 20 to 30 years. It is really, really counterintuitive to us, but being able to see what the future holds ahead of time is not all that significant. And the reality is, is that whatever the obituary says about each of us in the years and decades to come, so much of it we do not know. It is not in our access. And so what do we do with that? Because expectations for the future are absolutely important. I'm not going to argue that we shouldn't think about the future, that we shouldn't aspire and have desires with respect to it. But in a sense, the, the sermon today is all aimed at maybe answering this one question that an old Puritan, Richard Baxter, in a famous book called Christian Directory, said, here's an exhortation to Christians. This is probably 400 years ago he wrote this. Richard Baxter said, labor Christians, work really hard for a sound and clear understanding of the promises of God that you may know how far God calls you to trust in him. Because on the one hand, to think that he promises you what he does not actually promise you is not to trust in him, but to deceive yourself. On the other hand, to think that he does not promise you what indeed he has promised you is to cast away the ground underneath your feet. And so there's a sense in which the single goal of this sermon is to help us think through what exactly has God promised us when it comes to the future. What exactly can we go into the future trusting that God has promised his people? And again, Psalm 91, if you have that before you, it's in the NIV in your bulletin, is one of the classic statements in Scripture of what's often known as the providence of God. I'm going to talk about that for a few minutes, and then we'll look at Psalm 91 specifically. The providence of God in the Christian and Jewish tradition is often seen as kind of like a third way between two other ways of thinking about how the world works and how the future comes to us. One way is faith. The idea that everything is determined, everything is mechanical, and that it doesn't matter what you do, the future is going to be whatever the future looks like, that the future is faded. That's one view that is not a Christian view. The other one is chance. The idea that the future is just random, that it's just coincidental, that there's no real rhyme and reason, and both of those views are incredibly dehumanizing. They take away any sense of agency, any sense of humanity, and the providence of God is something else entirely than either fate or chance when we look to the future. Um, in the Christian tradition, the providence of God is usually connected to but distinguished from the doctrine of creation. And so you probably all know that great doxology at the end of Romans 11, from him are all things. That's the doctrine of creation. Nothing is here of its own. God has created everything that exists, but Paul doesn't stop there, the Apostle Paul. He also says, through him and to him are all things. If from him are all things is the doctrine of creation, 
through him and to him are all things is the doctrine of God's providence. Whenever Jesus talks about this reality that we can trust God for the future, he overwhelmingly, and I would encourage you to look for this and notice this in the future when you read the Gospels and the stories of Jesus, these are the moments when Jesus really leans into calling God our Father. Think of in Matthew 6, you can't take care of yourself any more than the lilies of the field, any more than the birds of the air, but your heavenly Father knows what you need. He knows what you want and what you require even before you want it, and he will take care of you in the future. Here is my very crude way of giving an analogy for the providence of God. The providence of God is, is the affirmation that God is not a deadbeat dad or an absentee landlord. He does not create something and then abandon it. One of the great affirmations throughout Scripture is that he does not forsake the work of his hands. He doesn't get it off the ground and then withdraw, wind it up like a clock, but then pull back from the scene, that he continues to provide and to protect and to sustain and to nurture and to care like a good dad or a good mom, like a good landlord. Doesn't just, you know, show you the place and tell you how much you need to pay. But when the toilet clogs up, he actually shows up and helps you fix, fix the toilet. When the light bulbs go out, he actually has extra light bulbs there for you. That God continues to care for the world that he has made. One of, you guys are a Reformed Presbyterian church, a PCA church, so I'm guessing that a lot of you have heard this or read this. The Heidelberg Catechism is one of the great Reformation statements of faith. It's very, very warm, very worshipful, very pastoral. And here's what the Heidelberg Catechism, thing written in the 1500s in Germany, second generation of the Reformation, says about the providence of God. Here's the question. What do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his own hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures in them, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. It's a great definition. It can certainly be misused. I'm going to get to this in a second. But probably for many of us, a passage like Romans 8:28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's a single-sentence summary of the doctrine of providence. Rudolf Bultmann, famous 20th century German theologian, said that when you understand this doctrine, one of the benefits of it is not that it promises promises us that we will not suffer. That's something I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. But that suffering loses its desperate character when we understand the providence of God. That suffering loses its desperate character. On the other hand, by the way, thank you for whoever put water up here. That was very, very thoughtful. Um, this is, and this will be what I, I want to focus on in Psalm 91, this is also a doctrine because it's so precious, because it connects to something we care about so much, what is the future going to hold? It is a doctrine that we are constantly, perennially tempted to misuse, to misunderstand, and to ask things of it that it doesn't actually give to us, and to ignore what it does actually give to us. For instance, if you have Psalm 91 before you in the bulletin, I think the, yeah, the verses are there. One of the reasons Psalm 91 has experienced a bit of a resurgence in the last few years is that not just once, not just twice, but three times Psalm 91 mentions plague, pandemic, epidemic. And so Psalm 91 
came to the surface early on in COVID-19 for a lot of Christians. You can see in verse 5, you will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness. That is the word in the ancient world for what we experience in COVID-19 when just a plague descends upon a community. Nor will you fear the plague that destroys at midday. In verse 10, no harm will overtake you, no disaster. I think the ESV says no plague will come near your tent that multiple times we are told here that this will not come near us. And it's, if you're really, really interested in this and you also are up for a little doom scrolling, one thing you can do, if you're persuaded by what I say, maybe you're not, is go and Google what Christian leaders said about COVID-19 based on Psalm 91. I'm not here to be controversial. My, we, uh, we live in Rego Park right now, right down the street from Elmhurst. Elmhurst, Queens was ground zero during COVID-19. A ton of our neighbors died during COVID-19. And I heard a lot of Christians say, look at Psalm 91. Non-Christians, they might die of this, but we're, we don't need to worry about this. And that's a profound misunderstanding of what this is saying. Often, Psalm 91 is misused in such a way. It's not limited to Psalm 91, but I would say there is always a temptation for those of us who have faith to look at faith and to look at the God behind faith as a kind of magic, as a kind of talisman that I'm going to put it really, really crudely. I have been a, a, a pastor, a, a campus minister, a, a religious leader for, for many, many years, and, and for most of those years working largely with young people. And so I've seen so many times over the last 20 years, young people and, and just human beings in general, look at me with a huge desire and yearning. Can you just tell me that the stuff that happens to other people isn't going to happen to me because I have faith in God? Can you just tell me that? Can you just tell me, to put it crudely, that if you lined up 100 Christians in a room and 100 non-Christians, that Psalm 91 means lower percentage of cancer over here. Psalm 91 means less bad stuff happens to this group over here. And just to immediately get that away, that is not something that God has promised us. Being a Christian does not mean less lower chance of the disasters that befall other human beings, befall us. If you, and I'll, I'll end with this in a few minutes, if you have any sense that you should trust God for that, I actually want to try to take that out from underneath your feet because I think you're not only trusting something that God has not promised us, but I think you're setting yourself up for a lot of disappointment later on. When I look at Christians who walk away from their faith as they get older, not the only, not even necessarily the primary, but certainly a major reason that I see is expectations unraveled that should have never been there to begin with. And as life fell apart, faith just couldn't hold on because there were expectations of what faith meant that were not there. I'm going to um, give you a line that the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, and I just want us to think about it backwards. Now, he is in 1 Corinthians 10 giving us assurance, which is good, but in 1 Corinthians 10, he assures us, no temptation has ever come into your life that is not common to all human beings. And as the temptation and as the tragedy comes into your life, God will also provide whatever you need to be faithful. But let's read that backwards. What's, what 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 is saying, and it's something that is said in Scripture a thousand times, is that nothing that befalls human beings in general are we exempt from. There is no immunity from the, the things that ail the fallen world and fallen human beings. There is no talisman that allows us to avoid this. But of course, that raises the question, well, then what difference does faith make? 
And here's one of the many reasons I've always been fascinated by Psalm 91, and now I want to work through it, is not only are we given Psalm 91 here, it's actually a passage that not only have I wrestled with a lot over the years that I, at this point in my life, find very precious, whenever I teach, say, a, a class or a session or, or a semester to, to Christians on how to interpret the Bible, I often use Psalm 91 as a test case because some of you might remember, or maybe you recognize this was read out loud, that someone who's very, very negative in the biblical storyline quotes Psalm 91 in a way that is mistaken. Satan quotes Psalm 91 to Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. If you didn't notice, look again at verse 11 and 12. Because God will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. At the very beginning of his ministry, the evil one reads these words to Jesus and interprets them in such a way that tempts Jesus away from trusting in God. I don't have time for this, but if you want to pursue this later on, not only does Satan read Psalm 91 in a way that is subtle, in a way that is somewhat plausible for what it seems to be saying, Jesus, you don't need to worry about stubbing your toe the way other people stub their toes. You don't need to worry about pain and suffering and heartbreak the way other people do. But you probably all know the story of Job in the Old Testament. If you want to look this up later, the first friend of Job, you probably remember in the story, everything falls apart for Job, and he has three friends who are, the theological word is for it, morons. Um, his three friends are morons, and the first friend, Eliphaz, in the first speech, Job 4 and 5, quotes Psalm 91 to Job, and he holds it up. You can actually have Psalm 91 open, have Job 5 open, compare. Eliphaz is clearly quoting Psalm 91. He's working through the promises, and he's holding up, and he's like, Job, what's going on? I thought you trusted in God. Job, what is going on? I thought you trusted in God. And he is quoting the promises of Psalm 91 and, and saying, Job, you, don't, you are exposed as someone who didn't trust in God. And so you not only have Satan offering a reading of Psalm 91, you have a prototypical sinner, a foolish sinner, offering a reading of Psalm 91. And as we'll see, we have very implicitly, but very profoundly, Jesus, the Son of God, offering a very contrary, different reading of Psalm 91. So let's get the basic facts on the table, and then we'll look at how, basically for a few minutes, how Satan reads Psalm 91, which by the way, I'm going to encourage you not to read it that way, and then how the Son of God reads Psalm 91 in the midst of his own suffering. The structure of Psalm 91 is very, very simple. Verses 1 through 8 are the first section, and then verses 9 through 13 are a second section, and it is almost verbatim in a slightly different way, just repeated. There's a threefold structure in verses 1 through 8 that's then repeated in verses 9 through 13. First, um, a condition, if you trust in God, if you take refuge in Him, if you hide under the shadow of his ring, uh, of the shadow of his wings, if you take refuge in the Most High, you can see verse one, in verse two, and in verse nine. If you say the Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High your dwelling, then it leads into a second movement in both sections, which gives us incredible promises of God's protection, of God's deliverance, of God's presence of God's providence, and then both sections end with basically this victorious, confident, triumphant statement that all the things that oppose us along the way, we will eventually triumph over. And so, if you trust in God, God will protect you along the way, and there will be a happy ending to the story. You will triumph over all that opposes you. And then, verses 
13 through, uh, sorry, verses 14 through 16, I, I never, you know, even to my own people in my church, I never say that this is something you need to do, but I would just commend this to you as a really wise use of your time. And it would not take, I think, a whole lot to consider, and I'll give you some reasons over the next few minutes, to consider memorizing the last three verses of Psalm 91 for two reasons. One is that you can probably see it's, you know, the, the NIV puts quotations in there that God speaks at the end of the psalm. If you have ever read through the psalms and prayed through the psalms, God very rarely speaks in the psalms. This is an unusual moment in the psalms. The psalms are 99.9% .9 of the time our words to God in confession, in lament, in praise, in thanksgiving, in adoration, in supplication. And here there is an oracle where God himself speaks. And as I'm going to argue in just a couple of minutes, whatever the first two movements of Psalm 91 mean, verses 1 through 8, verses 9 through 13, what exactly has God promised us? I think verses 14 through 16 are, so to speak, the decoder key of Psalm 91. Verses 14 through 16, where God himself speaks, is, I think, the key to understanding and decoding what has been said earlier. Last thing, and then we're going to look very briefly at how Satan reads this. If you have a Bible open, you could even turn to Matthew 4, although it's so familiar you don't need to have it open. There was a Jewish woman born in Germany in 1906. Some of you might know her name. She became one of the great thinkers and philosophers of the 20th century, Hannah Arendt. Um, she was probably most famous because she was there in Jerusalem when Adolf Eichmann was under trial in the Nuremberg trials and in the banality of evil. She coined that term. But, but just imagine, here you are, you're a young Jewish girl, you're born in Germany in 1906, and if you know anything about that time in, in European history, that's a pretty confident time, 1906. Technology is advancing. The economy is going great. There's a sense of globalism. There's a sense of how much the future might hold. And within the first few decades of her life, what? World War I, the Spanish flu epidemic, her own plague, then World War II and the rise of the Third Reich and the genocide of her people. She had to flee Germany in her 30s. She ended up living here in New York City for the whole second half of her life. Whatever she thought the future was going to look like as a young, Jew, a young Jewish girl in Germany in 1906, the future could not have turned out more differently than what she thought it would be. And in her famous book, The Human Condition, she says, what my generation was exposed as way too fragile, way too naive, is we thought we could go into the future on the basis of predictions. Uh, because of this, this is what the world's going to look like. Because of this, we can have hope. Because of this, we can be confident. And she says in a really famous section in The Human Condition that there are two basic ways human beings can go into the future. The first, and we're going to see that this is what Satan offers to Jesus, the first way to go into the future, to posture yourself towards it in all of its unknown strangeness and in terrifying unknownness, is to make predictions. And if there is anything that is true about our culture today, we are, like most cultures in human history, a culture that is addicted to predictions. If you, you know, read history and ancient cultures, there are soothsayers and magicians, there are shamans, there are, you know, just experts in every culture in the history of the world that are there to tell you the future, and we have all of them there today, too. I work in Greenwich Village, which is a really secular, really elite area, and it cracks me up, even though it's also sad, every day I go into Greenwich Village that it feels like on every other block there's a tarot card reading place. 
Now, it doesn't have to be that kind of stuff, but when you think of all the predictions politically, like whatever else it means to be a Wall Street broker, it's basically a professional form of predicting the future, that when we make predictions about the future, we um, deceive ourselves with illusions of what we actually know, of what we can actually plan on. And Hannah Aaron said, my generation went into the future making predictions and the rug was pulled out from under our feet. What she came to learn and to believe is that there's another way of going into the future, a better way, which is making and keeping promises. One way of going into the future is making predictions. Another way of going into the future is making and keeping promises. What we're going to see as we look at how Satan reads this passage and then how Jesus reads it is that that's the key difference. Satan offers on the basis of Psalm 91 predictions. Jesus hears promises that God has made and trusts in them even when he has no idea what's coming next. So in Matthew 4, this is the temptation scene. There are three temptations, and in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, they're in a slightly different order, but the temptation here, and it's probably the strangest of the three temptations. Jesus has just been baptized. He has not yet gone into his public ministry. All the suffering, all the conflict is still to come, and Satan takes Jesus up on a tall place on top of the temple and says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from up there. Literally, come down from up there. Why? And then he quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Angels will catch you. You won't even stub a toe. This is, I think, a good metaphor for how we all go into the future. I want to tell you a very brief story um, of something that is still seared into my mind. There are two things I really struggle with with respect to this. All of you struggle with at least one of them. Some of you struggle with the second. When I was in high school, I so vividly remember that in gym class, sophomore year, junior year, somewhere around there, we all had to do what was called a trust fall. And I don't remember a whole lot of the specifics other than it was outside, um, behind the high school, and that when you were standing up on whatever they had you stand up on, all I remember is that my feet that I was standing on, that my feet were significantly higher than the heads of the people underneath me. And we all had to, one by one, kind of do this and fall backwards into the arms of the rest of the class that was going to catch us. And there were two things that traumatized me about that. One is that I have a profound fear of heights. And so this was incredibly traumatizing to me. Some of you might have that, some of you don't. The other thing that you all share in is that I have a really difficult time trusting other human beings. You all share that quality. And so the idea that like, hey, that kid that like we got into a fight in third grade and this kid over here that we don't like each other, like they're really going to catch me when I fall backwards. And, and this idea of a trust fall where you fall backwards is not only, I think, what Satan is doing here with Jesus. You can fall and God will catch you and it won't be scary, it won't hurt, and you can know ahead of time what the outcome will be is there. But I also think this idea of a trust fall is a good metaphor for how we all have to go into the future with just a sense of, I'm just going to throw myself out there and I don't know what's coming. And so Shakespeare put it this way in The Merchant of Venice, mark this, Basario, the devil can cite scripture for his own purpose. And that's what Satan does here. I just want you to notice this is so simple, but it is so profound that at the, at the core, the essence of what the devil tempts Jesus for here is that faith means, according to Satan, that you can have the knowledge ahead of time that if you do A, God will do B. If you do A, God will do B. 
and you can map out the future now. And that's not true at all. To be a Christian gives you no insider access into what's coming next. It gives you no insider access into what God might do, either in terms of circumstances He might bring into your life or what you will be required to endure. Um, and, and again, I'm not saying, I'm not going the other direction either and saying, therefore, like, expect the worst. If we could come back in 20 or 30 years in this room, our experiences would be all over the map, just like human beings in general are. But what Satan wants Jesus to do is to hear Psalm 91 as divinely approved predictions. If you do this, this is what will happen next, Jesus. If you are the Son of God, come down from there because you're not even going to stub a toe. Look, it's right there in Psalm 91, and Jesus rightly forsakes that as a temptation, as a, as a form of not trusting in God. And so again, it raises the question, well then, what do we do with Psalm 91? And if you were tracking with me, and by the way, I like to call that the no stub toe reading of Psalm 91. That Psalm 91 means COVID-19 is for other people, not Christians. Psalm 91 means other people get cancer in their 40s, not me, I'm a Christian. Other people go through this tough stuff, not me, I'm a Christian. If I trust in God, then the stuff that happens to other people, not me. That's the no stub toe reading of Psalm 91. And not just Psalm 91, anytime you hear anything in Scripture that way, you are misunderstanding it. Scripture never gives us that. We are never told, if A, then you can know ahead of time. What happens to other people won't happen to you. What other people don't get, you will get. Now, it might be that you get that because God is good and He blesses us, but to take it to the bank right now and to implicitly say, if God doesn't come through in this way in the future, He is unfaithful, is a profound misunderstanding of faith. Is a profound misunderstanding of faith. Now, the, the question, though, is, okay, Satan clearly reads this in a certain way in Matthew 4. Where does Jesus ever read Psalm 91? And if you have the, the Gospel of Matthew open, I would encourage you to turn to Matthew 27. It's very, very easy to miss, but this is often true that the end of Jesus' story often connects in profound parallel ways with the beginning of his story. And at the very end of his life, as Jesus is on the cross, Psalm 91 comes up a couple of times. The first thing is this, Jesus is everything that you think Psalm 91 would protect us from has happened to him. His enemies have gotten the upper hand, he's suffering, he's lost, he, he's just everything is falling apart, and the crowd around him, it's no longer Satan, but I think we are meant to hear that it's a satanic temptation, so easy to miss. Did you ever make this connection before? What's the first thing the crowd says to him? as they mock him. The, the soldiers have done the mock coronation, and he's got the crown of thorns on, he's been crucified next to two robbers, and what does the crowd say? If you are the Son of God, come down from up there. And it is word for word what Satan said to him at the beginning. If you are the Son of God, come down from up there. This isn't what faith looks like. This isn't what somebody who takes refuge in God looks like. Jesus, if you have faith in God, show us, come down. And then there's all these lines that are echoes from the crowd of Psalm 91. 
If he trusts in him, God will deliver him. If he loves him, God will come through for him. It's these words from Psalm 91, and the crowd is throwing it at Jesus, saying Psalm 91 means stuff like this doesn't happen to faithful human beings who trust in God. And Jesus, right before this in the Garden of Gethsemane, is only in the Gospel of Matthew. Angels play a significant role here in Psalm 91. They play a significant role in Satan's temptation. Come on down, angels will catch you. And Peter says to Jesus, as he often does throughout the Gospels, Jesus, you don't need to suffer. You're going to destroy your enemies. Your enemies aren't going to beat you. Pulls out a sword, and Jesus steps back on the night before he's crucified, and he says to Peter, do you not think that I could call upon my heavenly Father and 12 legions of angels wouldn't come right now to get me out of this? But how then would the Scripture be fulfilled? Angels are on watch right now. He could call upon them. Jesus could come down from this moment, and yet he understands the fulfillment of God's promises to go through suffering, not around it, precisely because he reads Psalm 91 in a different way. Here's the, the, the thing that I want to leave you with. I'm going to give you, because so much of what I've done, maybe you're frustrated right now, has been deconstructing what Psalm 91 does not mean. And I felt like I needed to do that because it's so easy to misuse this. I do want to leave you here at the end with here's what Psalm 91, I think, is promising us. But here's an analogy that as you read these promises, and I'll read them again right now, verses 14 through 16, here is last weekend, one of my favorite things to do as a pastor, and because for 15 years I worked with college students and grad students, my church is 85% people in their 20s and 30s. I do a lot of premarital counseling. I do a lot of weddings. This last Saturday, I did a wedding, and I actually used this Hannah Arendt distinction, and I said to Jen and to Nate, what I am not asking you to do at this moment is to make predictions about the next 10 to 20 years. Jen, what do you think the odds are that in 10 years you're as attracted to Nate as you are today? Nate, what do you think the odds are that in 20 years all of her little idiosyncrasies that delight you right now won't annoy you more in 20 years? What do you think the odds are? And a lot of people, that's how we go in the marriage, that we look for somebody where it's like, I think there's an 83% chance of a good future with this person rather than this, rather than, and what I asked them to do was to make promises to each other, knowing that neither of them has any idea what the years and decades will bring. And so, and did you hear it in the Heidelberg Catechism? For better and for worse, for poorer and for richer, come hell or high water, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to be for you, and I trust that you're going to be with me and you're going to be for me. This is what, here's a way to think about what God is promising in verses 14 through 16. These are God's vows to his people. Verses 14 through 16, which are the interpretation, the key to Psalm 91, they are God's vows. And here's the first one. Because this person loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he or she acknowledges my name. He or she will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him, with her in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is, and this is what the cross, the story of Jesus teaches us, is whatever that last line means, with long life I will satisfy him, show him my salvation, and the lines before that, not I will take you out of trouble, I will help you to avoid trouble, but I will be with you in trouble. That's a very open-ended promise. That's a very open-ended promise that in the midst of it, this is a, a way of reading Psalm 91 through the lens of death and resurrection. We will participate in Jesus' cross, knowing ahead of time already that his resurrection we will already 
participate in. We can already know that. We don't know exactly what the spectrum of degrees of suffering and flourishing will look like, but we can know this ahead of time. And so here are two final kind of deconstructive notes of this is not what Psalm 91 means, and I'm going to leave you with here's what I think it means. When you're asking yourself, going back to this initial question, what exactly has God promised us? in the future. Here is one way I would encourage you to, to clear out some of the bad thinking that often I think marks the, the contemporary church with the health and wealth gospel that we all implicitly, even good Reformed Presbyterians, if we're American, we struggle with the health and wealth prosperity gospel, is I would say, if you understand God to have promised you something that could not be true of a Christian in North Korea as well as South Korea, then he has not promised you it. If you think that God has promised you something that couldn't be true of underground Christians in Russia, in China, if you think that God has promised you something that couldn't be true for someone with autism or someone who has lost job after job, and here's the, where the rubber meets the road, if you think God has promised you something that can't be true of Job and can't be true of Jesus, then he has not promised you that. That doesn't mean that he can't bless you that way. It doesn't mean that you can't long for good things and pray for them. But to say ahead of time, I know this is coming because I trust in God and he's unfaithful if my story doesn't turn out this way, is a misunderstanding of God's promises. Here's the second thing, and I've already said it, which is that faith does not mean that we have any privileged insight into what the future holds. It does not mean that I can kind of bank emotionally on this stuff I'm going to avoid. In general, this is going to be my experience. That is a profound misunderstanding of the nature of faith. What does Psalm 91 promise? What does God promise? And I want to give you three prepositions, and I'm going to flesh them out as I end. Psalm 91 promises us that God will be with us. Psalm 91 promises that whatever we go through, God will get us through it. And Psalm 91 promises us that whatever he's with us through the trouble, whatever he takes through, that we will ultimately triumph over it. And so with and through and over, that whatever comes, God will be with us. Whatever comes, God will get us through it. Whatever comes, God will see us victorious over it. We will triumph over it in the end. And, and this is how I, I, I then think of Psalm 91. Psalm 91, when you really see it for what it's saying and what it's not saying, it promises us much less than perhaps we wish it would, but I also think it promises us so much more than perhaps we suspect. It promises us so much more. So as a pastor, as a Christian, here as I end is what I believe I am authorized to promise you on behalf of God that in the years and decades to come, whatever trouble comes into your life, of whatever sort and for however long it lasts and for however overwhelming it is, that he will be with you, that you will not be alone and that you will not be abandoned. And that's not nothing. When you call out to him, when the pain and you're so overwhelmed that you can't deal with it anymore, and you call out to him that that cry will not go unanswered, but that he will deliver you and rescue you. I cannot tell you when, I cannot tell you how, but I can tell you that when that cry goes out in faith, it will not go into the void and return on empty, that he will rescue you and that he will deliver you. Because that is true. I can tell you that whatever trouble comes along the way, that you can know even before it comes and even while it's there, that this is not where the story ends for you that this is not where the story ends for you. What is so hard when disaster and suffering comes is not usually primarily that it's unbearable, but the, the foreboding sense of 
this means my story is a tragedy and not a comedy. This means that what I hope the future will hold, it can no longer hold that, and that is not true. You can know the whole time that you are in a comedy and not a tragedy if you trust in God and you take refuge in Him. To put it this way, if you understand your life from birth to death as the entire story, it will, for many of us, be unavoidable to interpret as a tragedy. But if you understand the things that happen to us along the way as chapters in a much larger story, comedies can have chapters that are really overwhelming and sad. You might be in a chapter that is overwhelmingly difficult, but you can know ahead of time you're in a comedy. You can know ahead of time that it ends with a happy ending. And here is, I think, the single sentence that summarizes Psalm 91, and I would exhort you to trust God for this, is that if you take refuge in God, if you belong to Jesus, no matter what comes, you are absolutely safe. You are absolutely safe. And I would encourage you to trust that. And so, as you think about Psalm 91, here's a good use for it. It is your obituary mailed in ahead of time. I cannot tell you anything about what's coming for any of you or me, but at your funeral, if you trust in God, Psalm 91 will be an accurate obituary. And that's not nothing. So let's pray that we would trust in God and take refuge in Him. Father, thank you for the promises of Psalm 91. I do pray that in the midst of this fallen world where there is so much heartbreak, so much difficulty, so much suffering, that on the one hand, you would help us to turn away from the temptations of the evil one, to think that we can manipulate God and use God as a means to an end and know ahead of time that if I do this, and that means God has to do this. If I don't do this, then that means God won't do that. I pray that you would help us to turn away from that kind of perception of faith as magic, as a talisman, as a form of control over the future and even over our Creator. On the other hand, I do pray that you would fill our hearts and our minds with faith that whenever trouble comes, that you are with us, that we are not alone, that we have not been abandoned, that when we call out to you, you've promised to answer us and to rescue us and to deliver that. And then we would also have a firm commitment to leaving in your hands the timing of those things, the circumstances by which they arise, and that we would trust in you the way that we see Jesus trusting in you, even in the darkest moment, even when he's in the depths, even when he's being told, if you are the Son of God, come down from there. Angels will protect you. You don't even need to stub a toe, Jesus. You're somebody that God loves. You're somebody who trusts in God. I pray that you would help us um, to hear instead your vows, Father, your promises to us of your presence, of your protection, and of the fact that at the end, um, your persevering, sustaining grace will lead us safely home. I do pray that, that in this word that I ended with, that each one of us in Christ would know that we are absolutely safe, and that whatever the future holds, that we would know that in faith along the way. So thank you for the words of Psalm 91. I pray that you would help us to reckon with them, to wrestle with them. And we just commit, Father, that as we each walk into a future, that to us, not to you, but to us, is utterly unknown, that we would not be characterized by fear and anxiety and stress or misplaced idolatry and excitement, but a simple, profound trust that you are with us, 
that you will take us through it, and that we will ultimately triumph over these things, not because of our strength or virtue, but because of the surpassing love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we pray this in his name. Amen.